So if you are here tonight, I, I assume you have come to receive the truth, and I'm going to do my darndest to give it to you. Um, but the, the, the thing about truth, and we'll talk about it a little bit uh, later tonight, is it's not always as apparent as we would like uh, to think. So I regularly pray to the Lord, and I regularly pray to the Holy Spirit to say, please, 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 just help me get this, you know, because I so often feel I, I miss the, the very obvious truths of God. So if you're in that spot, won't you place your hand on your heart with me? Um, because if you, if you don't need the help of the Holy Spirit in order for the truth to penetrate your heart, then I want to come and learn at your feet. Um, because uh, I'm in desperate need of the Holy Spirit myself. But just, just pray with me. Lord, well, you can pray it like you mean it, or you can pray it like, it's up to you. Um, Lord, you know this heart better than anybody else. You know it inside out. You know every corner and crevice. You know about the darkness, and you know about the goodness. Lord, and I need more of your light. Will you shine that light, Lord, in our hearts tonight? We are lost without you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we have given ourselves the best possible chance for the truth to penetrate our hearts. So uh, now the rest is, is up to us. So uh, we're continuing with the, the body of heroes, and it's sort of uh, the last Sunday I think we'll be preaching on this theme. And we'll be looking at uh, Barnabas in particular, and the title of my message is The Concerns of a Biblical Hero. Now, I don't know about you, but if you have become an adult, which I think generally most of the people here in the room, it seems like the concerns in life exponentially increase, you know, almost like we're stressed. It, it really makes you only realize as an adult, why was I so eager to grow up? You know, why was I so eager to become a common adult? Because when I think back to my childhood, you know, man, I was the most carefree person in the world. You know, there wasn't a concern in the world except how much fun am I going to have today, you know? But the things that concern us really tell us a lot about who we are, what we think about life, what is important to us, what we value, what we don't value. So it's very important to make sure that your concerns are focused on the right things. Because when I think we become very, very concerned about things that are very, very unimportant or that are not necessarily helpful, I think we, we get ourselves stuck and we sometimes can get into a, a place of bondage. And so I want to look specifically at what Barnabas specifically was concerned with and what made him um, different in a sense and what can we learn from him. So the, one of the first things we learn about Barnabas in Acts 4, and we're going to read it now, but Barnabas was a Levite. And uh, if you don't know what a Levite is, then read your Bible. Um, but uh, if you don't, don't worry, I'm going to help you out. Um, so a Levites, the Levites was one of the tribes of Israel, 
And the Levites were specifically set aside to look after the tabernacle and to uh, look after the proceedings within the tabernacle as it relates to the sacrificial system. So the Levites were basically like the Israelites' pastors. You know, so we have pastors today that are called to be pastors, apostles, and prophets. The Levites were called to minister God's truth and God's word and God's love um, to the, how can I say, to the Israelites. So we read about Barnabas and we pick up the story and see who he is in Acts 4.36. And that should come up on the screen. And so they call him Joseph here. So you'll think, why am I talking about Barnabas? But Seemingly in the Bible, people are often called, you know, two or three names. Um, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. That's quite a nice name to have, you know, son of encouragement. Um, he sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So we read a little bit more about Barnabas at, in other portions of Scripture, and we also know specifically that Barnabas was a missionary partner of Paul, and we also read that Barnabas was actually the guy that introduced Paul to the apostles in Jerusalem. You know, the Scripture says he actually took a hold of him and took him to the apostles. You remember this was quite a little bit of a difficult thing for Paul, meeting the apostles, because he used to kill them. So obviously that meeting could have had a little bit of tension in it. But Barnabas, you know, being the great fellow he is, you know, he helped Paul to, you know, come into the ministry and, and to unify him together with the apostles. So I want to look at three things that, that I think is specifically true for Barnabas because he was a Jew, but also because, you know, he was a, a Christian in a sense. I think sometimes we forget that in the first century, after Jesus ascended into heaven and the Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem, Christianity did not exist in the way that it exists today. The Jews, being the Jews, were very focused on them being the chosen people of God and them doing their own thing. So when the church started originally, it was confined within the Jewish religion. The Christianity did not sprint beyond the borders of Judaism for actually quite a couple of years. Now, we know that Christians were called Christians in Antioch, which is a, a, a city in the Roman Empire. But for many, many years, even the Jews were quite hesitant about the Gentiles coming into the Jewish so we read about Peter going to the house of Cornelius, and we read about the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. We were, the, the Jews were actually going, okay, well, the Spirit is obviously doing something here. We're not used to including the Gentiles in, in what God is doing with us, but clearly we have no choice anymore. And the Gentiles joined Judaism, in a sense, in massive, massive numbers, in such a sense that only later, you know, Christianity came to take on the form that it has today. But this makes me want to think about the fact that what does it mean to have a Jewish mindset and become a Christian, between just becoming a Christian? Because I think it's a little bit different, because even Paul and Barnabas, when they ministered to the different areas— You'll see in the book of Acts, they always went to the synagogue 
first to see if they can win some believers there, and then they would go to the Gentiles. And Jesus, even in you know, a few encounters with some Gentiles in the Scriptures, say, I have come to the Jews first. So there's something there, you know, in the Jewish mindset that is quite important for us to grasp. But the first thing I want to focus on is, is that Barnabas believed in the one true God. As a Jew, um, scholars believe and, you know, um, historians believe as well when they look at uh, Jewish tradition that education within the, the sort of Jewish household happened very much around the scriptures. And they would learn at a very early age to read and memorize the Scriptures. Now, one of the famous scriptures that Jesus even quotes, um, I think, somewhere in the Gospels and that many of the Israelites would have focused on, is this scripture from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 5. And it reads as follows, Hear, O Israel, Jehovah our God is one, and thou shalt love Jehovah thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. So Barnabas growing up would have been very, very aware of the fact that there was one God that ruled the entire earth. And this one God created, and it was this God that chose the Israelites, but it was also this God that now brought Jesus down to earth. The idea of the Trinity is not a very popular among, uh, one among the Jews. You know, it's a very sort of Christian um, how can I say mindset to think about God as three in one? But this was something that was clear in Barnabas' mind. But the world that Barnabas lived in was not a world where everybody believed there was one God. The world that Barnabas grew up in and that he was familiar with was actually a world with many gods. Now, if you paid attention when you were forced to have history, probably from grade 7 to 9. Well, that at least was, you know, the way it was for me. I didn't learn much about the Roman Empire, but I suspect some of you have seen the movie Gladiator, you know. Uh, maybe some of you? Um, yeah. So, um, some of you might have watched the series Rome. You need to repent. Um, but if you, if you did watch the series Rome, you will have a very good idea of how the first century world looked. So, you know about this place called Mount Olympus, you know? To us, it's really fairy tales and myths. But on Mount Olympus lived Zeus, you know, Zeus and all the other gods, you know? And generally, you know, they, the stories of Greek mythology reads a little bit like a soap opera. You know, they enjoyed meddling with human affairs and they enjoyed, you know, um, sleeping with each other a lot, you know, and sleeping with human beings. So it was just quite messed up. I think that's generally how things in soap operas also go down. Um, but, but maybe I'm a little bit judgmental. I haven't watched soap operas in a while. Maybe they've transformed, um, and they are much more moral now. But for, for the Jews, actually, and the Christians later, they were persecuted for destroying the Greek gods, you know, and the whole Roman society was built upon this system of believing in the gods, and there were temples in all the cities in Rome to the different gods, and people would worship different gods, and they would even worship the emperor. So 
it's a little bit hard for us to understand, but 2,000 years, believing in one God was the thing that was out of the ordinary. You know, in a world where people believed in many gods, you were considered a little bit crazy or naive for believing in one God. But it's strange. 2,000 years later, it seems like the landscape has changed a little bit. And we live in a society where it is considered a little bit stupid and naive to believe in a God at all. And uh, in my next slide... We live in a world where, where we have been challenged to imagine a world without God. So we had many gods. Now the predominant religion in the world is believing in one God, if you think about Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. But we live in a world where there is a certain degree of hostility surrounding believing in God or being a Christian, and you, we even hear the, 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 the phrase called militant atheism, you know, and I go, well, jeez, well, what does that mean, you know? I'm going to walk around shooting people who believe in God. That sounds like heavy stuff. Um, but the way that it's almost articulated, if you watch a little bit of YouTube on these guys, is that Christianity and believing in God is almost like a plague, you know? It's almost like we need to get rid of these archaic beliefs, you know, that believing in God is something that is passed on, you know, in this secular culture that we grow up in. And furthermore, what's even worse, in, in my next slide, it's that we live in a world where smart people apparently don't believe in God and dumb people do, which is like, what? You know? And when you consider this a little bit closer, this is categorically wrong. But how many of you have thought that? I, I know I have. That sometimes that message gets communicated to us through the popular media. That if you're really smart, you'll, you'll know there's not a God. But when you look a little bit closer, there is as many, if not more, super clever people that believe there is a God. So, I'm going to belabor this point a little bit. And, and I, when I was preparing the message, I asked, Lord, why do you want me to go into this particular direction? And he didn't tell me at the moment, so I'm just going to be obedient, and hopefully this is going to be helpful for all of you. So, this just got me thinking. Now, I don't know if you know how long the argument between atheists and theists have been going on. But it's been going on for a very, very long time. And scholars, if you read up about it, you can see around the 5th, 6th um, century BC, now that's about five or 600 years before Jesus Christ, you can find certain formalized atheistic beliefs in Taoism, in China, certain sects of Hinduism, and then if you look a little bit more towards the, the Greek thinkers where people started to conceptualize of a world where there is no God. You know, so the fancy phrase for it is basically a materialistic view of the world, a materialism, and not in the sense of buying stuff, but all we see is the material world. So for about 2,600, 2,500 years, 
Some people have said there's no God, and other people have said there is a God. And this got me wondering, how long is the argument still going to go on? When when will the argument get settled? When will one, you know, group of people be able to say, see, 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 I told you. Okay, now stop being foolish and believe, you know. Or on the other side, yeah, we told you, you Christians, you've lost your mind. Here it is, the proof, clear as day. What, what now? What, what, what was that? You know, you know and, it, and it seems like this seesaw, in a sense, you know, where, where there seems to be strong arguments against the existence of God and strong arguments for the existence of God. And, and the thing that I see sort of behind it, which I sometimes think maybe I hear more from the one side than from the other side, is that atheists say, just, just give us enough time, okay? As science continues to discover the known world, we will be garnering more and more evidence that disproves God's existence. And I get this feeling from them, the, the, the sort of, you know, self-reliance that somewhere in the future, you know, this argument is going to be settled. But I get the same feeling from our camp. Because we don't have any problem with science. We go, scientists, have your way. Discover as much as you possibly can because I absolutely guarantee you what you will discover at the end of the rainbow is God. So we also at the same time say, just give us time. Science is going to prove you wrong. So how long? When do you think we'll sort this out? Do you think we'll sort it out in our lifetime? You know, somewhere science will settle the argument completely for us? Because then we can just suspend our beliefs for the time being until somebody can come up with a clear answer and we can just go, okay, stop fighting, it's this thing, you know? But if you are following me, if we've been arguing about it for two and a half thousand years, why would we stop arguing about it in the next two and a half thousand years? Is there ever going to be enough evidence the one way or the another? And the thing is that you start realizing is that it's, it's actually not about scientific facts. That there's a deeper philosophical truth and that the whole argument we're having is actually a philosophical argument. Because if it was a facts-based argument, then surely we'd be able to settle it. Take the flatness of the earth, for instance. You know? So, uh, you guys were aware that we, for a very long time, as human beings, thought the earth was flat. Okay? And even the church thought this, and the church even... And I, and I hate to say this, we've done many, many atrocious things, but we've done many, many good things too. The, the church burnt some people at the stake for saying that the earth was round. You know, so we didn't just believe it, we believed it, okay? <laughs> it's not like, you know, something like, yeah, doesn't matter, round, flat, who cares, you know? Um, we believed it in such a sense that we, you know, Galileo, for instance, Copernicus was the guy that, you know, got burnt very sad. 
um, uh, Galileo, we, told, we, say, we said, stop, st tell people that what you told them is a lie, you know? And if you don't do that, we're going to kill you, okay? So Galileo then, you know, recanted in a sense. He repented of his foolish beliefs of believing that the earth was flat. But take, for instance, a belief like the earth is, is flat. I don't think anybody in this room believes that the earth is still flat because the, the facts seem rather obvious, don't they? We have pictures of this round thing, okay? And, and we have pictures of the sun and the galaxy and this round thing is going around the sun. Okay, sorry, I just want to make sure because here's the crazy thing. There's still people who believe the earth is flat. There's like a society, honestly, honest to God, go Google it, flat earth theory, and you will find a group of people that argue that the rest of us who thinks the earth is round is deceived. And the earth is flat. Now, this got me thinking. So, we ask this question about does God exist or doesn't God exist? And we've been asking it for a very long time. But you know what I thought? I thought to myself, why are we even asking the question in the first place? And that's the real interesting question for me. Is why is there this question in the first place? Why is the truth not apparent to us? Why can some people, even in light of the facts, believe something else? So for us, we consider that believing that the earth is flat is foolish. But yet man has been endowed with this ability to believe what he wants to believe. And that even in light of clear evidence and clear facts, we can't see things Clearly. Now, all of us are aware of the fact that human beings can see, but we can't see clearly. When somebody talks about being in pursuit of the truth, wanting to discover truth, it's that they're on a journey. The truth is not apparent to them. They cannot see the truth clearly where they find themselves, right? Now, each and every one of us in our own lives, we are wrestling with perceiving reality accurately. Because surely if we can perceive reality accurately, there would be no question. There would be no argument. There would be no back and forth because we'd both be able to go, boom, there it is. Voila. Can we agree? Thank you. But, but it's strange. So what does atheists tell theists? You're deceived. And what does theists tell atheists? You lack honesty. You know, you're not honest with yourself. If you were only honest with yourself. But it's that thing that intrigues me. Because what's the greatest enemy of truth? Lies. We cannot see the truth clearly because we can believe that a lie is the truth. Where does this thing even come from? Why did human beings start lying to each other? 
Why do we have this incredible ability to distort the truth? This is what I would like to ask an atheist. I'd like to ask an atheist, why is there such a thing as lies? Why did human beings, when they became conscious, start lying to each other? So in your world, there were millions and millions of years of evolutionary theory and evolutionary life. Not a single lie on planet Earth. Dinosaurs, tigers, bunnies, not lying to each other. Just, you know, not hiding meat. You know, the tiger was doing his thing and the mammoth was doing his thing. He didn't cheat on the mammoth with, you know, his wife or hide his text messages or anything like that, you know. It was just mammoth to mammoth, you know. Things were clear. There was truth. And now, now human beings come along and human beings gain consciousness. And the first thing that we do is we start lying to each other and mess up the entire planet. Why? Where does this thing come from? And I wonder, I'm sure many atheists might have sophisticated and clever answers for me for why human beings have this incredible ability for self-deception and the deception of each other. But I've never, ever heard a coherent answer from any of them. But when I open my Bible and I get to the third chapter, things start to make a lot of sense. Because we were lied to. This story that we have makes the existence of lies so clear to us. God made us, put us in the garden, and lies entered our hearts. And ever since that moment, we have not been able to see clearly. And because we are not able to see clearly, we have all come to believe lies. We have all come to believe that something which impacts our lives significantly might be a lie. And isn't it this journey that leads to freedom? Isn't it the journey from Believing a lie from being deceived to embracing the truth that leads to liberty. Jesus says, the truth sets you free. Because for me, without God, as we prayed in the beginning of this evening, there's no hope for me to be freed from my own deception. If it is not for God. And if I read the story further and I read about Jesus in John 16, verse 13, Jesus says, but when He, listen to this, the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. The atheists have no answer for the deceptive nature of man's heart. But when I read the story of Scripture, it becomes all too clear to me 
why we fumble around in the dark so often is because we're not familiar with the truth. And we do not welcome the Holy Spirit enough into our hearts in order for that truth to come home to us. <laughs> so we live in a world where we fall in and out of believing in God in a matter of days and hours. <laughs> I meet people that on Monday they believe in God, on Tuesday they don't believe in God, Wednesday they believe in God again, Thursday they don't believe in God, Friday they don't believe in God, Saturday they definitely don't believe in Him, and then Sunday they have come back home. <laughs> Am I talking to the right crowd? It's so weird for me that we fall in and out of believing in God in a matter of hours during our days. How, can you explain that? Why do we believe in God in the one moment and the next moment we don't? I think it's often because our understanding of God is based on our circumstances. So when there's evidence of God, hallelujah, He is here. When we feel abandoned and alone, y'all know, the, the, these atheists, that, man, they make sense, man. Yeah, I, I, I feel God is like on flipping Mars, man. He's not here. I don't see any evidence of Him. And then the next day, you know, there's a deposit in your bank account. Hallelujah! God is here. These atheists are wrong, man. They don't know what they're talking about. You know, you come to a worship service and you, you feel a warm fuzzy and you go, hmm, yeah, God is here, man. And you go home and you face the things at home or the struggles there or there's a difficult relationship and you go again, no, man. She's these atheists are onto something. We, we like a seesaw, hey? But when you understand that you are deceived, not only about how to see reality, but you are more than anything deceived about who you think God is, then your experience will start to make a lot of sense to you. And when you engage with the Scriptures, you will also discover that the emotion of feeling that God is not here is not a foreign one to the writers of the Bible. And when I read Psalm 13, I read about this experience. And this is David. He says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? Like forever is like forever. Like done. The Lord is never going to remember him. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? We must be very careful not to abandon our intellect. Because we allow our emotions to dictate our beliefs. You must allow the truth to dictate your beliefs, not your emotions. Now, emotions are wonderful things, and emotions can steer us in many directions. But the problem is that most of the lies that we've believed were created in a moment of hurt. And because those lies were created in a moment of hurt, those lies have an emotional hold on your heart. And when those emotions start stirring up in your heart, it alters 
how you see reality. Because this is, I'm sure, what David experienced in this moment. He didn't feel God was close. He didn't feel like God was showing up in his life in the way he wanted God to show up. And I guarantee you, each and every one of you have had that feeling probably a million times. That God is not showing up for you the way you should. Why is your first option to completely abandon your belief in God? When God doesn't show up, He obviously mustn't exist. That is a very immature point of departure. Because look at the psalmist. In the next verse, he goes on. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for He has been good to me. For Barnabas, I suspect, he never rolled around at night wondering about whether God existed. He only wondered about who God is. And I think it's very important for us I'm not saying you're not allowed to ask that question. But I'm saying there's a time where that question must have an answer. And you must live in line with that answer. I'm no longer wondering about whether there isn't a God. There is a God. He walked this planet. He died for me on the cross. And He was resurrected. That's it. I don't wonder. I, there was a time and a season in my life where I wondered about whether there was a God or whether there wasn't a God. And I encourage you to go through that season. I'll give you books on both sides. But then don't be lazy. Really pursue the truth and make up your mind. But once you've made up your mind, settle in the truth. And no longer worry about whether God exists, but worry about who He is. What kind of God is He? And what is His heart towards you? Because that's what the psalmist was concerned about. And that's what Barnabas was concerned about, is the kind of God he served. Because he served a God that was faithful and had an everlasting love towards him. In Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I don't know where you are tonight. But my hope was that I could settle that question in your heart tonight. The argument is going to go on for the next two and a half thousand years. I don't know when the Lord is coming back. Nobody knows. But I guarantee you this argument is not going to be settled in our lifetime. And there's no explaining why the question exists in the first place. Unless you read the revelation of God. Because He's the only one that can save us from our deception. And bring the truth into our hearts. 
So settle that you believe in God. And be concerned with who He is because He is with you until the end of the age. So let us pray together and, and, and ask God not to take the emotions away. The highs and lows of life will come and go. They will. Your feelings are your feelings and they are wonderful. But when your emotions take you down and when your emotions take you up, remember that you serve a good and faithful and very, very real Father. Lord, that is our prayer. That we might rest firmly in your truth, Lord. And that we are not swayed to and forth by arguments, Lord. But that we are focused on your person and who you are, Lord. Holy Spirit, will you fulfill your mandate in our hearts. And come and reveal the truth to us. We open our hearts to you. Why? To especially in those moments where God feels far. Or we feel like you're not acting on our behalf, Lord. That your spirit will come and draw our attention back to your character. Back to your goodness. And that it will build resilience in our hearts and endurance in our hearts, Lord. That our faith is in you. And that our faith is upon you and who you are, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you.